Hello, welcome to episode number 129 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul and in this episode we hear from Elizabeth Rodini. She is Andrew High School Arts Director at the American Academy in Rome and the author of Gentile Bellini's Portrait of Sultan Mehmet II, Lives and Afterlives of an Iconic Image published by I.B. Taurus and Bloomsbury. The book traces the historical and cultural circumstances of how Venetian Renaissance artist Bellini's iconic portrait of Mehmet II, conqueror of Istanbul, was produced in the Ottoman capital in the late 15th century. It also looks at the afterlives of the painting in subsequent centuries when it was rediscovered and reinterpreted in many different times and places. But before we get started, let me just remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal which gets you a whopping 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles including physical books pre-orders and ebooks the book we talk about in this episode is not actually on that list because it's only just been published but possibly it will be added next year as a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Elizabeth Rodini. The book opens with her description of viewing the painting for the first time two decades ago when it was languishing away from public view in the basement of London's National Gallery. So I started by asking her to describe for us that first viewing. Yeah, it's a great place to start because it was sort of disappointing the first time I saw it. You know, I had been thinking about this painting for a decade or so. It had been part of my dissertation at the University of Chicago in art history. And I, it was a dissertation on the relationship between Venice and the East. And there was a chapter on portraiture and there was a small section on this portrait. But for various reasons, I had become more interested in it. So in my mind, I think it had become this big, brilliant, luminous work. And it was kind of shocking to see it for the first time when it, it wasn't quite as I had imagined it. It was in the lower level of the National Gallery because this was a space that had been designated for works that were considered problem works. They may have had some sort of doubt about their attribution, who actually painted them, or perhaps very damaged, or some other sort of question mark. You know, it's such a fine collection that there can still be interesting pictures in the sort of also-ran category.
category. And, and this painting falls into that category. We could talk about why. I mean, that's one of the things that intrigued me about the book, but it is a, a very damaged canvas. It's had a lot of repainting, including in the 19th century. And some experts have said, you know, maybe 10% of the paint is original. So this is the kind of thing that makes art historians kind of nervous because you don't want to build your whole career around a painting that turns out to be not really what it seemed to be. To me, though, this gap in its history and in sort of its unity as an object really provoked my interest. And I started to wonder, well, is this a way of thinking about what happened to it since it was painted between when it was painted and the present? And obviously it was painted by uh, Gentile Bellini, a Venetian painter. Just give us a brief biography. Who was Gentile Bellini? Gentile Bellini was the older brother of a now more famous artist, Giovanni Bellini, and they were the sons of a very important Venetian artist named Jacopo Bellini. Um, and they're really key painters in the second half of the 15th century in Venice. And, and Gentile was extremely successful as a painter for the doge, for the ruler of Venice. He was a very successful portrait painter, and he also painted these wonderful sort of scenes of the city that have become very famous. Uh, his portrait of the Piazza San Marco is very famous, for example. So he had official commissions from the ruling class of Venice, the doge, other wealthy members of society. And when the Ottoman court came to Venice in search of a good painter, Painter, really Gentile was one of their best. And so he was sent by the Venetians to the Ottoman court as kind of a gift to the Sultan. Now, the Ottoman Empire was at war in the Aegean and the Mediterranean with the Venetians for almost 20 years until a peace treaty was signed in 1479. And as you say there, Bellini arrived at the Ottoman court as part of an official delegation that same year. And he ended up spending 18 months in uh, Istanbul or Constantinople. Why did he go there? Just basically flesh out for us you know, the circumstances of him going there. Sure. He really went because the Sultan at the time, uh, Mehmet II, was a very broad-minded patron. And even though there had been this long and ongoing history of warfare, was interested in gleaning and gaining knowledge from as many different sources as possible. He was a really, you know, what we would call a Renaissance man, I guess, a really omnivorous thinker and student of the world. And so he sought out professional, not just artists, but also architects and engineers and, and, and scholars from all over the world, not just Italy, from wherever he could get them to come to his court and really enrich his court. So Gentile Bellini arrived as part of this delegation of people coming at the request of the Sultan. So there is this sort of aspect of diplomatic gift to his arrival at the court. Yeah, it made me remember when I was reading the book, it made me think again about how there's this popular idea of Mehmet II in Turkey, particularly today, where he's just basically a kind of warrior who's this sort of almost uh, cliched, sort of charismatic, brave man. But when you dig into the kind of historical record, he was actually very much more, as you say, a kind of Renaissance man who was had this great cultural hinterland. He was linguistically very adept and uh, wasn't just the kind of parody of um, Ottoman Muslim virtue, really. That's absolutely true. I mean, he was, as I said, a patron of, of architects. He was he studied ancient languages, meaning ancient Mediterranean languages, 
He was a collector. There are rumors that he had even some Christian objects that he may have collected. He may have had a a small group of prints, uh, and that was a really new technology just coming out of Europe. It's sort of a repeatable image made out of a engraved or incised metal plate, a copper plate. So yes, absolutely. He was, he was a very well-rounded individual. And I think it's, you know, really an extraordinary part of Turkish history, actually, and, and, and something really worth remembering when we think and talk about him. Do we know why he wanted such a portrait and why particularly from a Venetian painter? Well, we don't know exactly why. Um, the, the sort of way that the portrait that Gentile Bellini ended up painting for him while he was at the court, and, and that is the subject of my book, this portrait has been interpreted, has long been interpreted by art historians as being significant because it's a an early accurate representation of a foreign and particularly a Turkish ruler. And I've taken issue with that to some extent because I think that is an approach to the painting that puts all of its significance on the Europeans. And we have to remember that it was actually Mehmet who called this painter to his court, who asked him to make this portrait. And presumably the portrait was for him. And and, and so the idea that he was trying to get an image of himself so he could figure out what he looked like seems to me to miss the point. I think that this was part of his exploration of his curiosity, that he was very aware of what was going on in the arts in Italy at this time. And there were huge developments in terms of naturalistic representation through the study of anatomy, through the study of perspective. And I think he was interested in kind of seeing what this famous painting could do. And so I've interpreted this portrait as almost a test of the painter. You know, you're, you're, you're so great at making these realistic portraits. Show me what one actually looks like. I mean, it, it's also possible that he had this portrait painted because he was then going to give it as a gift, for example, to someone. This was a common practice in this time. Or to have it copied and distributed as a sort of diplomatic offering. So we don't know. He died very shortly after it was produced. We don't know exactly what he would have done with it. But I like to think that this is part of his curious exploration of the world and trying to to learn about these other practices of, of painting. Now, much of the book addresses the afterlife of the painting, and amazingly enough, it appears to have disappeared for about 400 years after it was painted, just completely removed, really, from the historical record, and there's no trace of it. Do we know why or how that happened? Well, this is one of the mysteries of this picture's history, for sure. We don't know we really don't know. The The belief is that it probably left Istanbul shortly after it was painted. Uh, Mehmet died the next year. Gentile Bellini went back to Venice. Mehmet's son, Bayezid II, is known to have been more averse to the notion of sort of lifelike imagery. So the, the story is that he may have disposed of it along with some of Mehmet's collection that he found distasteful to his own sensibilities. But in any event, it's gone. And it doesn't reappear until the middle of the 19th century, as you said, about 400 years. So part of my challenge in, in studying this picture is trying to figure out what happened to it in that interval. And and there are, there are hints 
here and there of where it was. Uh, an important collector named Paolo Giovio, who lived in northern Italy, not far from, well, not far from Lake Como in the north, had a famous collection of portraits. He claims to have had it. That seems to be untrue. It's possible that it was in, I think it's most likely that it was in a Venetian household. Some noble or merchant acquired it somehow and, and, and hung it in his household. And there is a reference in the middle of the 17th century to it being in the, the Zeno family's possession. And then there's another sort of interesting hint, which is about 100 years after it was painted, Sultan Murad III was interested in making illustrated genealogies of the sultans. And he sent another envoy to Venice in search of historically viable or verifiable portraits of sultans from the past. And the fact that he went to Venice in search of those portraits really reminds me that I think this portrait had a great fame. So it was lost and we don't know where it was, but it was remembered. It was known of. And this is partly because it was written about by the artist biographer Giorgio Vasari. And also because Gentile Bellini continued to sort of flaunt his credentials as a well-traveled expert on the East. So it had a fame that lingered on even when people didn't know what had happened to it. And that that is one of the reasons that when it is recovered in the 19th century, it's immediately recognized as the significant picture. And it re-enters the historical record in 1865. It was bought in Venice by the art collector and traveller Austin Henry Layard and brought to London. And Layard later became a British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in 1877. Uh, do we know how he found it and what does this period really illuminate for us about the painting? Well, he says, and you know, one of the wonderful things about this period is they all wrote letters all the time. So he, there are several letters in which he describes the painting coming into his possession. And he says, he describes a sort of dark, misty night along a Venetian canal. And he's stepping out. He owned a palace in Venice. And he, he had actually grown up largely in Italy, where his, his family had come for the, the, the weather because his father was sickly. So he had a palace on, in Venice. And he says he was stepping into his gondola one night when a man sort of appeared out of the shadows and, and offered him this picture. And he says, I knew basically immediately what it was. It was this renowned, famed picture by Gentile Bellini of Mehmet II. So it's a little bit shrouded in, in, dark, in darkness and mystery, but he, he's very proud of it from early on. One of the interesting things is in these letters, at first he seems very excited about what great condition it is, it is in. But if you read several letters over the course of several months, you see him sort of backing off a little bit and recognizing that it's pretty damaged and it needs some conservation. So he sends it to London and um, he has it conserved and treated in some workshops there. One of the remarkable things about Layard being the individual who comes into possession of this painting is not only that he was the ambassador to the Ottoman court, but he had also been, you know, a, a sort of amateur archaeologist who had gone to Nineveh in what is in Iraq today and excavated these Assyrian remains that he sent back to the British Museum. So he very much embodied this sort of British colonial control of, of the East 
And I find it really interesting to think of how someone like Layard, who had these intimate personal connections with that part of the world, looked at this picture. You know, he didn't look at it the same way we do or the same way Mehmet did. He had a different kind of relationship with it that I think must have been embedded in his own experiences as a a, a sort of um, representative of the British Empire in the East. So I think we can frame it in an Orientalist context in which the East is being filtered through personal experiences and made meaningful through one's own personal experiences. And in another part of the book, you discuss the painting in relation to the Italian national movement of the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. And this was a time, of course, after Italian unification. So the elites there were looking for artistic symbols, among other things, that would sort of embody the Italian nation, a very fragmented place that was trying that they were trying to unify. How does Bellini's portrait of Mehmet II fit into that whole that whole story? Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to me because this portrait just keeps popping up in all these different discussions. But yes, um, what you said is absolutely true. Um, You know, Italy is a a nation state founded in the late 19th century, and it's made up of these varied, proud and distinct cultures and traditions. And one of the ways the government uh, and some of the officials in the government thought they might try to create a sense of national unity was to really bolster a sense of cultural heritage of cultural patrimony. So in the early, in the first decade of the 20th century, these lawmakers started drawing up documents or or laws to try and control the export of Italian art because in particular British and American collectors were starting to buy a lot of these things because Italy was a relatively poor country but with a lot of great art. So they started making lists of works of art that they should keep, try to keep within their boundaries. And this painting falls on that list. There are many paintings on the list. It's not one, it's not unique in that way, but it does appear on the list. There's a certain attention to it that's interesting because at the same time, the National Gallery is trying to get a hold of this picture. Layard has died. He's willed his paintings to the gallery. And at one point, the British ambassador says something to the effect of, you know, we have to be careful taking this portrait of Mehmet out of Italy because the Italians really think of it much like we think of the Elgin marbles, which of course had become this lightning rod and and even more so today between the institution of the museum and in the case of the Elgin marbles, the Greek nation state. So it comes to symbolize something that the country thinks it might use to kind of uphold and begin to build its own identity, its cultural identity. Now, your book, I think, might send many readers scuttling back to uh, Orhan Pamuk's My Name is Red, because that is marinated, really, in this whole era of European artistic influence in Istanbul in the late 15th century, the Renaissance, you know, the crossroads that Bellini and Istanbul represented. Just wondered, uh, as you were researching the book, did you reread My Name is Red with uh, fresh eyes or...? I absolutely did. It's one of my favorite books. And I, I, I love how Pamuk brings the court to life and makes sort of the, the painter's arts so mysterious and, and wonderful. So most definitely, and Pamuk is a reader who's, uh, is a writer whose work I, I, I really enjoy and admire. And he's actually himself written an essay on Bellini and Bellini's significance in sort of, um, well, he sort of phrases as in modern Turkish consciousness 
incompleteness with the sense of this lost promise of, uh, of a, an art form that might have matured more fully in Turkey if it had just been nurtured in the right way. So I, I find his work extremely alluring for sure. Yeah, that now you mentioned that piece. Uh, it's in the collection of his uh, other colours in right. English, That's a collection right. of his non-fiction works. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Thinking about Orhan Pamuk's My Name is Red, I saw that um, Jonathan Jones, the Guardian's art critic, uh, wrote a few years ago in an article on it that, uh, quote, Venetian artists learned enthusiastically from the East. Venetian painterly light and colour have little in common with other Italian Renaissance art. They have much more in common with the rich Eastern cultures whose crystal treasures were brought back from wars and trade. Um, is that an accurate assessment or just a flight of fancy on that, on hmm. Jones's part? I think that might be a bit of an exaggeration because I think there weren't that many artists who had the experiences that Gentile Bellini did. He, he was not the only one, I think it is important to say, and, and he did have influence. But the, the, the element of that quote that I find persuasive is that it wasn't just about painters uh, who went east, but it was about objects that came into Venice. And I do think that that is an element of the relationship that's very important. It's not just the Venetians going there, it's the the objects from Turkey and other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean that came into Venice that sowed all sorts of interest in pattern and color and texture, which you, you definitely see also in the applied arts in Venice of the period. So that exchange between the two is really, really an important part of Venetian art and architecture as well, notably. Now, Bellini's Mehmet II came to Istanbul for a high-profile exhibition that was put on by Yapa Kredi in 1999. What was the story of that exhibition and why did it suddenly come back to people's minds in Turkey at that point particularly? So, so 1999 was a very important moment for this picture. It was the first time that the picture returned to Istanbul since it had left after the Sultan died. And one of the things that was so notable to me about this, this moment is the way it was described both by the organizers of the exhibition and by some of the people who saw it. So I went and I looked in the archives of the National Gallery and I found the letter, the loan request letters. Uh, and, I, and we should say that this was an exhibition of one painting. This was the painting. And then it was surrounded by what we call photo murals, right? So sort of poster-like things on one side explaining the history who Gentile Bellini was, and on the other side explaining who Mehmet II was, and these sort of photo murals meet in the middle on this one original work of art. So the, the curators at the Yapikredi who put the show together wrote letters explaining why they, they needed this picture for their show, and they really use, they use some of the similar language to Pamuk's in the sense that this painting represents the result of a fusion of great cultures, one a patron and one a painter coming together to make this magnificent work. And it was really an exhibition celebrating this kind of cultural exchange and unity. Um, and, and you see that in the letters, again, that the curators wrote. And you also see it in some of the responses from visitors. Um, when I first learned about this show, I, I read newspaper articles and there are visitors quoted as saying, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see this painting back here and really seeing this exhibition as a moment of opening up. Um, I also spoke to one of the one of the leaders of the Yapikredi at the 
the time, Ozab Birol, who told me that it was really the arrival of this painting in Istanbul in 1999 that kind of opened the eyes of the Turkish art world to the fact that they really did have the cachet and the clout and the ability to participate in the international museum scene, which hadn't as much been the case before then. So the exhibition, I think, was important as a, a mark of kind of balance and accord between East and West. And it was also a, a place for the, the art world in Istanbul to really begin to see itself active on an international stage. And you describe Bellini's painting as the default image of Mehmet II that, quote, resides deep in the national consciousness. And indeed, it is a ubiquitous picture. I expect almost everyone in Turkey recognizes it. It's uh, there in many different popular forms in, in popular culture. Just talk about that aspect of it. Why do you think it's had this very persistent afterlife? Why is it appealed in such a way to contemporary Turks? It's a, it's a good question. I think there's a certain mystery to it and that its very story is draws you in and is there's there's just a mystery to it that is uh, alluring i think it has a certain um, gravitas you know there's a seriousness to it that is respectful of this historical figure who's so important in turkish history but it's also a very appealing picture and and i also think there may be something to the fact that it kind of appeared in the world again just at a moment when for example photography was coming on the scene and you were finding more and more sort of reproductive print technologies so that the image could circulate in a way that wasn't previously possible. So it just gained a lot of visual presence in, in this way and became known and became the image. And, you know, the truth is we don't have many images of Mehmet. There's another very famous one, um, a Turkish image of Mehmet smelling a rose, a more sort of quiet image, less of a maybe official looking image, but a, a more meditative, scholarly kind of image. Um, so I think that this, this particular painting speaks to the view of Mehmet as a strong conqueror figure as well, because he looks very powerful and potent in the image. So it may have to do with just the way that it circulated and the kind of prominence it's gained through, for example, it's been on stamps, it's been on official posters celebrating the anniversary of the conquest. And it just be, sort of came to enter the Turkish imagination in that way. Now, the uh, Istanbul Metropolitan Municipality under the opposition mayor Ekrem Imamoğlu uh, hit the headlines over the summer for buying a different but very similar portrait of Mehmet II from Sotheby's for a price tag of over a million dollars. And that one shows Mehmet alongside a young man uh, in a rather kind of enigmatic pose, I suppose, but in a similar pose himself to the Bellini painting. And that one is of unclear origin, but it's said to be of the school of Bellini from circa 1500, so basically the, around the same time. What can you tell us about this painting and what do you make of that purchase by the Istanbul municipality? Yeah, I don't know very much about the painting. And I think um, one of the challenges is not a lot of people have known very much about the painting. I, and I've never seen it. I've only read the various auction house reports, um, Sotheby's and Christie's reports about it. It seems like it is likely to be a picture of 
you know, the circle of Bellini's lifetime. So let's say it's something around 1500, probably. Um, and it does seem to have some relationship to the picture. Now, again, I'm, I'm speaking without having seen it and based on what I've read, but we don't know. I mean, it, you know, like the painting I wrote about, it doesn't have provenance. It has even less provenance. And it is a strange picture. That dual portrait is odd. And, and there's, there's no doubt about that. And it's hard to know who that other figure is. So I, I, I think, you know, one thing that's great about this is I believe there's going to be a whole bunch of scholarly studies of it and 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 we will know more. I think it's it was a bold move <laughs> on the part of the city. I know that that it may have seemed like a, quite an indulgence to a lot of people. I mean, of course, I'm excited about it because it it brings more attention to these these matters. But one of the things that has interested me about this picture also is the sort of politicization of Mehmet II as a figure representing sort of a, a kind of Ottoman pride that is taken up by certain more perhaps um, nationalist members of. Turkish society. And what's interesting to me is that the Turkish mayor who supported the purchase of this picture actually, I think, falls on a different side of the political spectrum. So it's interesting how Mehmet is somehow appealing, and this history is appealing to many different members of Turkish society. So I guess my short answer is I'm excited to see what the various scholars who are studying it will discover and what we'll learn, because it really is a, a fairly mysterious image. So that one sold sold for just over a million dollars. Completely speculative question here, but how much would the Bellini sell if it was put on auction? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> that is well outside my expertise, so I wouldn't even venture. But I, I would say that this uh, recent sale suggests that it would sell for a lot, a lot more, yeah. That was Elizabeth Rodini. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 129. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so please do send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to also check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, arriving in your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Find out how to sign up by going to their new website, turkeyrecap.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>